This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. If Antarctica starts to grow weeds, how would that affect you and where you live? Because the fact is, small amounts of plant species do actually grow in the Antarctic. They grow in the ice-free areas. And currently, less than 1% of the Antarctic is permanently ice-free. But thousands of square kilometres of Antarctica will become ice-free between now and the end of the century. So, Kirsten Diprose, that's frightening to think about. And what does it actually mean here for us? What does it mean for people like you that live in Warrnambool and coastal Port Ferry? What changes will you see? Yeah. Hi, Rochelle. It's a good question because we kind of think about it as being over there. It's this kind of beautiful neighbour of ours that not many of us get to see, but it's going to have a big impact. So coastal areas really need to start thinking about how to adapt to unavoidable sea level rise as that ice melts. And this could mean more flooding for coastal regions. And also as that climate changes in the Antarctic, it also means more extreme conditions right across the southeast coast of Australia. So that can can mean more heat waves and more droughts as well. It's like our barometer, isn't it? It's our crystal ball. We say, well, we don't have a crystal ball into the future, but maybe we do. And maybe that crystal ball is the Antarctic. And if the most pristine place in the world is starting to change, then what do we need to know and what do we need to learn? And I wonder, and a lot of what we'll get into today, I wonder how much of that is the reason why people are asking questions around tourism to the Antarctic. So why people visit there, not for scientific reasons but for tourist reasons and what I find fascinating is that in the COVID summer so the summer of 2020-2021 only 15 tourists on two yachts visited the Antarctic. This year now that tourism is up again 100,000 tourists so not scientists but tourists will visit that region. So surely wow, that's going to have an impact, you would think. We bring stuff with us, you know, on our shoes, on our clothes, even yeah. if we think that we don't. Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing to think. And, I mean, I would love to go to Antarctica. Um, <laughs> don't know how I'd feel about getting there, but I'd <laughs> yeah, love exactly. to see I it. I couldn't handle the boat trip, to be honest. Because the people that you meet who have been there, it's a life-changing experience. They love it, you know. And there's this theory that the people who return from the Antarctic come home with what's known as the ambassador effect. So it awakens you to the environmental concerns of the world. You know, Antarctica is 90% of the world's ice. So that's why it's so important. And so if people come back with this greater knowledge and, and greater drive for the environment, then surely that's a good thing. So maybe you've been to the Antarctic and why did you go and did you come back with this awakening? Did you have the ambassador effect and was your consciousness of the impact on the environment heightened? Or should we number the amount of tourists who visit? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Kirsten Diprose with you on ABC Warnable. Should we number the amount of tourists that visit the Antarctic? And as we start to see changes there, Kirsten, what does it tell us about where we live and should we be concerned? I don't think I, I could go. I, honestly, I I don't like the cold to begin with. <laughs> I don't like the cold, but like you you dress for it, you know. Like you don't go there, you don't get caught out in Antarctica. I don't think too much. Um, you go in the summer, from what I hear, and that's where all the animals are out. Um, and you can go on some exciting expeditions. So the, the scientists who go and, you know, we're talking about should just the scientists go. Well, the scientists also need people to help them make a camp and, you know, they need people to cook food and, and do other stuff. So people go on those kind of expeditions. I don't know if I could go for a full two months or three months. A lot of them are long term because it takes you so long to get there. And I know some people do a flyover. Um, uh, you know, you can fly out and have a look and come back, which probably isn't great for, for climate change. But again, uh, it's meant to be beautiful. Well, this text already, most tours to Antarctica never touch the ice. Most just look from the boat, not walking around or doing tours. So maybe that's acceptable if we do it like that. A little later in the program, we're actually going to be speaking to a woman who is midway. She's actually in the Drake's Passage, which I don't know a lot about, but it's supposed to be one of the treacherous, most treacherous bodies 
bodies of water and she is en route to the Antarctic as we speak. Oh, but- it's bad. Can I just say it holds more than 800 shipwrecks. So historically, if you read about it, <gasps> they reckon about 20,000 sailors have lost their lives. Um, anyway... <laughs> Boats are better these days, so I'm sure it's all going to be fine. Um, touching wood. But she's everything. a brave lady. She's she, yeah. She's been twenty times, Hannah. Who we're going to chat with another woman that's been multiple times is Dr. Justine Shaw. She's an Antarctic scientist with Queensland University of Technology and the Australian Antarctic Division. Justine, a warm welcome to the conversation hour. I guess there is a huge fashion fascination, and rightly so, with the Antarctic. What are the main reasons you think we should be going at the moment? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, look, Antarctica um, is an amazing part of our planet and I think science is really important that we can... The Antarctic delivers a lot of informa- really interesting learnings for science. So for scientists, we learn a lot about climate, we learn a lot about evolution, we learn a lot about nature, and not just for Antarctica, a lot of Australia's climate and weather is generated from Antarctica. By understanding what's happening in Antarctica, we can help make predictions more broadly around what's happening, going to happen elsewhere in the world. How tough is it though? Because I understand with ice melting, it can be really hard to predict what levels uh, the sea is going to rise by and how much of that ice and how quickly it's going to melt. Because we hear about predictions based on centimetres and a lot of that has to do with Antarctica's ice. What do we know from that? I guess the important way of thing to remember is everything is connected. So the the weather in Antarctica, the sea ice in Antarctica, it's connected to Australia. And I guess that's a really hard thing for people to get their head around because it is so far away. But we we make we make the best predictions we can. But we're, those predictions are informed by by real data. So, you know, currently in, in Antarctica, there's an ice core. Um, people are taking a million-year ice core. And they're able to go back in time through that ice and see weather patterns and climate cycles. And that informs what, what we predict for the future. So, yes, they're predictions, but they're based on really robust data. And each year we get more and more information to help us understand these systems. Stay with us because Ray's call from Williamstown. Ray... You've been to the Antarctic. Yes. Hello. Good morning. When did you go? Uh, in 1978, I was with the Antarctic Division and we sailed on the Nella Dan and I spent 15 months there. And at that time, we still had uh, huskies oh, at, wow. around. 15 months, that's, you know, that's a, like a mini lifetime there. How many people were there? What was it like? There were 26 men. There were no women at all on the continent in 78. They, women were allowed to go a couple of years later and now there's a fair percentage of women. Uh, the, we, we did a lot of things that now are not allowed. I went out to the Emperor Penguin Rookery out at Oster, which is about 60 kilometres away. Uh, There's about 30,000 birds. One of our jobs was to count them. One of another job was to collect blood from them for testing of Newcastle disease back here in Melbourne. And that's all changed now. Why the changes? Was it purely because of the impact of humans being that close to such an important species? Yes, yes. I think that's the principal reason. The dogs were removed as a concession to the French, I believe, uh, on environmental grounds uh, and over-snow vehicles improved dramatically since that time um, and we were they were rebuilding the station wow. in uh, 197, beginning 1978 it's now a totally different station and the fact too now that you know I mean you just heard Ray say there Justine that 
women weren't allowed and that has changed dramatically since then. Also too, the fact that he was drawing blood from some of these penguins. What are some of the major changes that you've seen about the expeditions and the research that gets done? Yeah, well, so, you know, Ray's kind of hit the nail on the head with a really big one. There's no more dogs, but we now we now have women going down doing science and all sorts of jobs in Antarctica. Um, and I guess Ray, Ray mentioned, you know, that why the dogs were removed and the the environmental protocol, the Committee for the Environmental Protocol, which is part of the Antarctic Treaty System, has come into effect since Ray was there. So the really important thing to remember about Antarctica is no one owns it. It's a global common. And so it's managed and governed through the Antarctic Treaty System, which many countries have signed up and agreed to abide by. So it's a really amazing, it's a global common where all the countries who participate agree to abide by a, a set of rules or, or essentially that, you know, the law of Antarctica, the treaty. And it's able to implement, and it has since raised time, new measures that people abide by. So removal of non-native species was, was the dogs, they're not native. Um, and then new things like protected areas, which are essentially like, you know, like a national park, have been put in place for really sensitive areas. So, you know, the, the emperor penguin rookery, you can't just go there now as a scientist or an expeditioner without special approval. Tourists can't just go into some areas because they've been defined as protected areas. So the treaty, this governing sort of piece of legislation in a sense, or this agree, agreement, protects Antarctica. And, and it, that's what's changed over time. We're seeing more and more consciousness of our human impacts in Antarctica. So, Dr Justine Shaw, you mentioned the, the treaty and, and how Antarctica is governed. And I do wonder, as um, climate change really takes hold, and I, I wonder where those relationships will be, whether they'll become a bit more strained, what are your concerns at the moment for the continent yeah, so we, we did a, a study recently and it was published just towards the end of 20, 2022 and we actually got a group of experts, many Antarctic es experts, so people who work in policy, people who are scientists, people that work with on-ground infrastructure and understand what's happening with with buildings in Antarctica. And we got people from many different countries, so the parties to the treaty, and we asked them collectively what, what the threats are to Antarctic species how we can manage those threats and we looked at what the cost of implementing that management was. So climate change is the biggest threat to Antarctic wildlife and plants and it's as it is elsewhere in the world and it's happening, we're seeing it, we're seeing glacial retreat, we're seeing changes in, in distributions of, of penguins who, who might be on sea ice, the sea ice is changing. But there's other things we can do as well. And so things like really focusing on biosecurity to stop the introduction of new invasive species is really important. So by that, do you whole... mean humans? Yeah, so there's a whole range of ways we can do that. So tourists, are they have, they, they have really strict biosecurity protocols and also scientists and Antarctic um, you know, national programs that go down. We can also focus on our new infrastructure, what we're designing as, as, we're, as these stations are growing, as we're building new icebreakers, there's new innovations that we can implement to reduce the likelihood yeah. of introducing species and things like that. Well, I mean, there's a text here that says, my daughter went to Antarctica with the Sea Shepherd. Her stories are amazing and profound. I definitely think access for tourism should be limited, but there should be a lottery to prevent only the wealthy being able to go so that there's no elitism. That's from Amanda and Pakenham. And quite often when I think about those who can afford or those that maybe can have that privilege to go to such a pristine place like this, I think of comparisons to, say, climbing Everest as well and the debates around that. Justine Shaw, Dr Justine Shaw is with you. Daryl's call from Fish Creek. G'day Daryl, you've just returned. Yeah, I just got home. How are you going? I just got home on Christmas Eve from uh, a long-held dream to go to Antarctica. Went for three weeks um, with an Australian expedition company. Actually went down from South America and just want to encourage everyone. I know what you've just been saying about the cost. It is prohibitive but we scrimped and saved for a long time and it was a long time planned, but it was absolutely magnificent and I just can't encourage everyone enough to go down there. I just thought it was an incredible experience. You are so remote, it's so vast, it's, uh, yeah. 
It's so a this is that kind of the ambassador effect. This is the ambassador <laughs> effect we were talking about. Yes. You can hear it in your voice. I love it. Yes, and that's one thing that you come home with. And I, uh, I sent a message in actually, and your producer called me back. Uh, <laughs> you come home with a sense of ownership and responsibility. Having visited and the interactions that you have and everything that you see, you come home as an ambassador uh, for this place that you have to protect. And as a tourist and, you know, as a as it being a luxury of being able to go down there, the biosecurity controls are incredible, you know, to the extent of you can't wear your own shoes down there, you uh, can't take a backpack, you can't take a water bottle, you're not allowed to sit down. The, the controls around transferring anything from outside to Antarctica are amazing. And we did have an audit of our ship when we were down. We did have um, the British, from the British um, uh, base, they came on board and, and conducted an audit and they are looking for seeds in Velcro on your coat. They are looking, you know, backpacks were turned upside down. They went through us with a fine tooth comb and we are literally picking grains of sand out of our expedition boots to prevent transfer from one place to the next. But wow. it is absolutely worth it. And I wonder, like, what did you do there? Because Patrice has sent a message saying, I went on the Outback to Ice Cap Expedition back in 2014, which my husband was leading. It absolutely changed my life as well. So she says the same thing about you. I felt that there yeah. was a, I was standing on Mother Earth before human kind of polluted it all. We swam in the icy waters. We kayaked and slept on the ice. We were super aware of our footprint when we slept on the ice and we collected our business as we washed our boots and so much more. It really had a big impact on me and the way uh, we live our life and the way we move in the land. An absolute wake-up call to what each and every one of us can do. Does that wear off over time, though, Daryl? I hope not, and I hope I carry this for a long time, and I hope it changes the way. Well, I'm certain it will changes the way that we conduct our lives back here because I'm constantly thinking about, I know it's only, you know, a couple of weeks since I've been home, but just thinking about the the wildlife that we interacted with, the seals, the penguins, the whales, incredible, you know, interacting at that range with humpback whales, and I was lucky enough because, yes, I am a kayaker, so I spent a lot of time on the water away from the ship, 10 to 12 k's away from the ship on a daily basis, just interacting and observing and just having those moments of, my gosh, we have to do everything we can to protect this place because, yeah, yeah it's it, it's pretty special. It sounds amazing and, I, you know, it sounds like you can't put a price on it, but I wondered if I could ask you a cheeky question of <laughs> how much did it cost, if, if you wouldn't mind answering. Yeah, I mean, costs. Of, I mean, it's public information. So, you know, for my partner and I to go, we're looking at about $50,000. Yeah. And so you went from Chile, did you say? Uh, from Ushuaia, the bottom of Argentina, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and is, you know, is that one of the more direct ways? Is that about how much it costs no matter what? Or are there I think other... It's the most, I think it's the most efficient way. And I know, Rochelle, you were talking about the, the Drake Passage and how Drake yes. is, and it does have does have a reputation but you know touchwood we were blessed with what we call the drake lake uh and we went across smooth sailing um but yeah i mean i don't know if it was in the press recently before christmas there was people there, some people killed across there uh we were already down in antarctica but they, they mean the seas are horrendous but that's the most efficient and effective way to get there and yeah. if I you are lucky enough you term. can go down there yeah, the, the drake lake or the drake shake depending yes, on absolutely. how you go <laughs> daryl it's been wonderful to speak to you and there's even something calming about even just hearing your stories and how it's affected you and it sounds like it was quite profound so thanks for calling through we appreciate it you're welcome have a good day but dr justine shaw i wonder as life-changing as it was for Daryl and for Patrice who texted through, those little granules of whatever it might be that we're carrying with us as human beings, even though that ambassador effect is brought home with us, is it still fundamentally changing one of the most pristine places in the world in a negative way? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think most tourists who go down actually have that, you know, that inner discussion with themselves. I think one of the important things to remember with Antarctica and the work that we're doing, as I said, even if tourism is having, can have impacts, but also what we do at home here in Australia impacts Antarctica. So our actions here in Australia have a bigger impact on Antarctica. And I guess that's our point with climate change, carbon emissions, you know, we really need to understand and accept what's happening elsewhere beyond our own backyard. And Daryl spoke about those humpback whales that he saw in Antarctica. 
they travel down the coast, east coast of Australia. So the whales that people see off Harvey Bay and, you know, Bondi Beach, those whales go to Antarctica. Isn't that incredible? even our actions in our own home, and we see this with long-range pollution in Antarctica, we see it with microplastics. So we really need to think think beyond our own backyard and really think about our impact as humans on the planet. And I think what Daryl and the others have... I mean, you, we even heard, I think his name was Ray, the man who'd been there in 1978. He was still passionate about his experience. And it's that, that wilderness, that pristine you know, landscape and people are so moved by it and it's almost a, you know, a natural human instinct to be in awe of it, the beauty. And it's important that we remember our actions today can have impacts more broadly than just our own backyard. I think that's a great point for you to to leave um, on. Dr Justine Shaw, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Dr Justine Shaw there, Antarctic scientist with Queensland University of Technology and the Australian Antarctic Division. Isn't it fascinating when you think about microplastics? And I know last year we did a program on seabirds and the impacts that we have as human on seabirds. And when we talk about migration of whales, there are a particular uh, shearwater, a bird that migrates to Phillip Island and nests in Phillip Island that comes from the Antarctic. But anything that's in the guts of that bird, so all of the plastics that it consumes as a result, because they migrate the same passage every year, that's all going backwards and forwards. So absolutely, even if we never go, right, if we don't have that 50 or 60 grand, and who does, but to to travel and to experience it there we're still having an impact. Yeah. There's a, uh, a wonderful local lady named Colleen Hewson who has made it her life's mission to walk across all the beaches around here in Warrnambool and pick up all of those microplastics. She makes artwork out of them, but it's about raising awareness that this is just what's, you know, turning up here. Can you imagine what's out there? And actually there was a recent survey um, done about of, of children and teenagers who say microplastics in the ocean is their number one concern. So climate change and microplastics plastics but we don't hear it to- talked about enough no absolutely not peter's been waiting patiently in envelope peter good morning you've spent some time in the antarctic i have in fact i'm, I'm the husband that you referred to earlier when um uh, oh, patrice's husband that's right well beatrice yes yeah. <laughs> beatrice so I, I run the outback to aspect program taking six indigenous students from outback australia um down to antarctica on, on a you know a world first leadership initiative um, I've been down 10 times. Um, I went first down, went down to the South Magnetic Pole in 1996 and I've been going down there ever since. And it's, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I endorse your earlier corner, uh, callers and um, I can speak to the passion that one still holds, you know, 25 years later on, I'm still passionate about Antarctica and I love taking people down there. And, I mean, there's a taxi that says bloody tourists, they have to go everywhere. Cruise ships, they're trashing Venice and now Antarctica. I mean, can we make those similarities? I mean, are cruise ships, you know, meandering through parts of these pristine icy waters and people are just kayaking and acting like they would on, you know, the Fair Star? Or is it different? (laughs) It's it's vastly different. Um, I speak to the point you made earlier um, about we are having an impact on Antarctica remotely, whether we like it or not. So it's better that we go down there in a responsible fashion so we can see the impact that our day-to-day living in a carbon, you know, dependent world is having on us. I mean, you know, the uh, Antarctic and Arctic regions are are increasing their temperature at twice the rate of the rest of the world. As you spoke earlier on today, you know, if they do increase this rate, we're going to increase the sea levels by 25 feet. That'll, you know, wipe wipe out... you know, 187 million people will be displaced. So it has a huge impact. So let's go there and let's go there responsibly. Antarctica is incredibly well governed, as you've already spoken about that agreement, which expires in, in 2048. And we're also governed as, as tourist operators by under IOTA, which is in, International Antarctic Tour Operator. And there's no other tourist destination which is governed as rigorously as Antarctica. So I think let's let us keep on taking people down there, sharing with them the beauty of this continent and um, keeping on doing it underneath the uh, governance that, you know, IOTA offers. You make a strong case, yeah. don't you, Peter? I mean, 
you know, what we do here is probably more impactful than what tourists do, so long as it's capped and responsible. One three hundred triple two seven seven four. You can text as well zero four three seven 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 four seven seven four. Well, we've spoken of the Drake Lake and the Drake Shake, but Dr. Hannah Nelson is a lecturer in Antarctic Law and Governance at the University of Tasmania. Are you currently on the Drake Lake or the Drake Shake, Dr. N- Nelson? Well, I'd say we're somewhere in between. I think it's around four to five meters out there, so not too bad. Is it rough? Like, are you feeling it? Um, we're rolling around a bit, yeah. You'd want your chair stuck down to the ground. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hannah, it's been incredible speaking to people today that have been and the life impact and the, and the life-changing experience it's been for them. You're currently en route to the Antarctic. I think you've been like 20 times. It's become your life's work. What are you going to research this time? Why is this so important to you? Yeah, so at the moment, we're just coming back from our second voyage, uh, interviewing tourists about the citizen science projects that they're taking part in. And the reason that this project was so important is because we're trying to find out what ideas people have about the place before they go, and how that changes with the interaction, and ultimately looking for ways to foster a real care for that place both with those who visit and also spreading that much further back home as well. So with the, the stories that people bring back with them. I feel like we might be conducting a mini study alongside you in this program <laughs> at the moment. Um, but what are you finding? Um, what are people saying? Yeah, well, it's been um, super interesting doing these interviews and asking at the start, you know, what do you think of with Antarctica? I mean, maybe I would ask the same thing. Often it's snow, ice, white and then coming back it's a lot more specific so people are really valuing that experiential aspect of being in situ in a place and and learning about it you know what is this penguin what's that specific behavior what is this ice doing how does that relate to what's happening in the oceans or perhaps what's happening back home as well so that being in situ but with the wraparound education being important does it concern you that we've got around 100,000 tourists that are due to visit the Antarctic this year. One of the upsides of COVID for that region was that it was only 14 tourists in something like 18 months. And I guess if you have the money, anyone can go. Do we need to look? And there's a lot of wealthy people in the world, Hannah, isn't there? So, I mean, similar to Everest, do we need to look at who's going, why they're going, and whether or not it's always going to have a good impact? Well, I think it's really important questions to be asking. And yeah, we have seen that growth um, to that rebound after COVID and also a number of new ships coming online. Um, I think people do visit and they will keep on visiting. So then the questions to ask is how can you try to have some kind of a positive impact from that? But at the same time, looking with clear eyes, what is the human impact and having a conversation much more broadly as well with the broader society, what sort of impacts are we comfortable with Um, and and how can you balance those things? Does it lead to a change in behaviour from the people you're speaking with? You know, it's amazing to have this experience and to really feel the awe and power of Antarctica, but in the long term, does it make people live differently in Australia, you know, think about their carbon footprint more or, you know... (laughs) change something about their lives? That's a really good question and that's actually one of the things we're trying to find out with this study. It's why we have a follow-up aspect after the voyage, so on the way down and on the way back. But that question of change back home is also one that IATO, that International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators, is very active in promoting right now. So here on the ship there'd be a stamp card, you know, every day what's in action could you take? But in terms of a change, we're also seeing people bringing this up as a concern and being conflicted about, you know, should I travel or should I not travel? Um, and, and that's something that, that's actually a very common thread uh, in, in our conversations here. Do you think it will ever change, Hannah, or will the numbers continue to grow and rise? Look, I think it's a, a question that needs to be looked at by all the different stakeholders. And there is a particular 
carrying capacity at some point, but it's something in which the companies have, have a stake there, something in which the Antarctic Treaty parties certainly have a role to play in terms of governance. And it's something that people back home have a say in too in terms of social licence and who we think Antarctica is for and what we should be doing yeah. down there and to what extent. It's not a black and white should there be people or not, um, but it's certainly something that's not straightforward. Hannah, can I get you to sort of paint a picture of, of where you are if you, uh, if you could look out at the moment or what you can see and how far you are from Antarctica? Yeah, well, we've been sailing for a day and a half now. If I look out the window in any direction, I'll see ocean. Oh. I'll see white caps on those. Um, I can look up to the clouds, which the NASA cloud observing app, we've been looking at those with that app for some citizen science, actually. Um, they're a little bit pink because it's about to be sunset. Oh. I'm imagining it's an image you never get tired of. And do you just pinch yourself every time you're out there, Hannah? Well, it's so different as well. And it's for me, it's been five years between visits until now. And, and just every site is every day is different. And seeing those changes, um, it's pretty special. But it, I mean, it can be quite sad when you see some sites that are very different to in previous years. Mm, I'll bet. How, like, when will you be there? So you've been on for a day and a half. How long to go? Uh, well, we're heading back now, actually. So we've ah. just had five days around the peninsula. So we should be back in South America in Ushuaia uh, tomorrow evening. Well, we wish you such a safe trip. And just finally, because I'm always, this is always the question I have to ask when people go on voyages like this. What's the food like on board? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have good food while you're away for so Do long, you? Hannah? Uh, it's very tasty, but it's funny you should ask that comes up a lot in our interviews too with that difference that often being a marker of a difference between cruise versus expedition but yes we're very well <laughs> very well fed well, good to hear i'm so glad that we were able to get that connection and we wish you a, a safe journey home thanks so much for spending time with us yeah, thank you. Dr Hannah Nielsen, their lecturer in Antarctic Law and Governance at the University of Tasmania. Could you imagine, Kirsten, just looking at the oh. windows and seeing that? It's um, amazingly beautiful, but for me I find that really terrifying as well, that oh. sort of endless horizon oh, yeah. and not having any land anywhere actually really quite terrifies me. It's not something I've really done before. It'd be Mate, a, I could a big barely leap. make it to the Great Barrier Reef, right, on one of those boats <laughs> and back without freaking out, so... I don't think you wouldn't want to send me. No, I love that you wanted to know about the food though. That's that'd be your well, question. Are there any good movies? And what's the food well, like? You know, are there trays of lasagna? What's going on? <laughs> but maybe you've been yourself, or do you think like so many people are texting as well, saying maybe we should be curbing the amount of people that do visit the Antarctic? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria, this is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Kirsten Tipperose with you on ABC Warrnambool. And Kirsten, when we first discussed this as an idea, you often wonder, geez, I wonder how many people will call or how many people have had an experience around this or if anyone, if many of our listeners would be. And some of the experiences that people have had, I just love our listeners so much. Listen to this text. Antarctic discussion now on the Conversation Hour is fascinating. My father's trip to the Antarctic was in 1959 and his last trip was 1985. He did 17 trips and in all of his maps, quite a lot around the Antarctic. There were no women in his original trips and voyages. The only way of communication was via Morse code. We would have a code book and we would go into the office on special occasions to send my father a message to different things he was being said. I was fortunate enough to meet Captain Davies as a young child. He would have been 90 and had stories that went right back to the really early expeditions to the Antarctic with the English and the Australians. It was another world. Not sure what those original pioneers would have thought of what's happening down there now. It really was another world. I it, mean, still it still is. is. Yeah. yeah. But what this is more amazing there. text. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, um, hearing that, I mean, can you imagine your dad going off to Antarctica back in the, you know, 70s and 80s and having that as your only way of communication? That's... Um, that's crazy. It's it really is like exploring. It's it's almost as as far off as space. 
Well, this texter says, you do realise that your program now is probably boosting the tourism application rate for the Antarctic <laughs> as it's sounding like an awesome place to visit. Stephen Chown is the Director of Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future at Monash University. Stephen, we've spoken a lot today about its awe and its beauty and how life-changing it is, but the fact is for all of us back here, you know, just tromping around in our hometowns and suburbs in Victoria, we're all having an impact, aren't we, on this pristine environment? What concerns do you currently have, whether it be tourists or whether it be just how we act here and now and the impact that that's having on the Antarctic? Well, well, thank you very much for having me on the program. It has laid a beautiful foundation through your callers and through the speakers that you've had. And I don't think there's tremendously more to say other than the two major concerns are a global one, which is, of course, our contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and it's not simply individuals of course because individuals often are unable to do much except live their lives it's kind of the arrangements we make within society and how we respond to the activities of large corporations from a political perspective that are so important so that's the one side and the other of course is local impacts in the antarctic itself so one can think of all the kinds of impacts you just mentioned but of course, science also has impact. So as uh, several of the previous uh, callers and speakers noted, it's a question of our willingness to tolerate some impact for the benefits we get, either through that extraordinary ambassador mm. effect or for the science information we bring back to understand our world. Stephen, you led a study on climate change and the Antarctic. You know, at, at the start of this program, we spoke about the concept of weeds growing in the Antarctic as ice recedes. Is that something that we could see in the future, you know, landscape of Antarctica? So if we think of climate change's impact on the Antarctic, perhaps one of the most important things for listeners to appreciate is the size of the continent itself. It's enormous. So, you know, larger than the the continental United States, for example. And that means that some areas are changing quite quickly. That's the peninsula to which most tourists go to is warming quickly and changing considerably, but others are, are relatively static. So imagine kind of the body of the Antarctic itself is quite different. And in that respect, there are some places not only that could have weeds soon, but that have had them already for at least the last 10 years. So the first invasive species or weedy species that are not indigenous to the Antarctic or don't belong there were discovered quite early on, but certainly are reproducing in the 2012's um, time frame. So we've done it already. And the question is just ensuring that we don't continue to do so in that region in particular. And for most of the either the invasive species, the non-native species, they would, I presume, would have come from human beings. But do they live? Do they last long? Do they survive? I, the majority don't, of course. You can imagine. It's not such an easy environment. And I think you mentioned that from the clothing perspective for us. Uh, but uh, some do. So the, one of the key species is a little grass. In fact, you can find it in uh, all throughout Victoria. Uh, if you look especially in disturbed areas or paving or where there's a bit of nitrogen, that's called the annual bluegrass. And that does very well, thank you very much, on the Antarctic Peninsula. It has no trouble at all surviving and reproducing. So there are species that can make it, and that's one of the concerns, of course, and explains the biosecurity that was described by one of your callers mm. that's so stringent. I've heard the, the soil there is similar to the Andes, that, you know, it's it's not a great growing sort of a soil. Could we one day, though, see more than just these kind of weed-type, moss-type um, growth or even something a bit more significant? Talking a tree. <laughs> could That's we see trees? Could we see That's... trees there? Well... I think if you, if, you, if you just picture in your mind the Antarctic continent as this vast landmass sitting over the South Pole with a, a little um, point sticking out to South America, and then think about a ring of pearls in the middle of the Southern Ocean around that. And those are known as the subantarctic islands. And fascinating about those is that tree introductions have already taken place. 
So I think that one should not, if we have continuing significant climate change, underestimate the extent to which trees might be able to establish on some of these pristine regions. Bearing in mind too that life is incredible. So, so as you know, some plants can more or less just suck nitrogen out of the air with the help of bacteria and, and make their own environment to succeed. So I think we do have to be quite careful about the extent to which we might change that environment over the next 50 years. And so even though, as you mentioned right at the very beginning, that it's a balancing act between the good faith that comes back and the, the, the life-changing experience that people have and even the role that citizen scientists are playing, do you think we need to reduce the numbers? If we're talking about 100,000 tourists heading to the Antarctic this year, Potentially that will just grow in numbers. I mean, people are saying we need to put a levy on it, that that needs to be more of a, uh, almost like a a raffle type system to ensure that it's not just the wealthy that go. Would you like to see a change to who can go and how many people can go? Well, at at the moment, I I would say, um, speaking as a typical scientist, that that, um, there's good reason to think about the way we behave there where we go exactly and what that means for cumulative impacts relative to the benefits we get. And I think there's a bit of work to be done about that first before we make those decisions. So this is a question that, for example, in Australia, we know very well uh, when we think of our really popular national parks, those questions have been posed over and over again. If we think of the Great Barrier Reef um, marine area, there's zoning, there's an excellent zoning plan for activities. And that was based on a huge set of data, which I think is not yet quite there for the Antarctic. So my answer would be, I think we do need planning and we do need management, but we need a little time to improve the information required for it. You can think, for example, of the fact that if you go to some places, there's a place where tourists go and then there's a place where nobody else goes and the impact is limited to that area. Mm. So those kinds of questions still need to be resolved. I think, Stephen Chan, it probably goes into climate adaptation planning that we're looking at doing, you know, in Australia right now in different regions as we plan for a warmer future. With that in mind in Antarctica, what are we realistically looking at? We know we've had the eighth warmest years globally on record. We know that global temperature has consistently been above one degree. You know, it's about 1.15, I think. And of course, we're approaching that threshold of 1.5 degrees, um, which is that sort of catastrophic level in 20 years if we don't do something about it. What are the realities? And I I know this is such a, a, a down kind of conversation, but where are we at? Well, the first point is that um, I like to think that um, it's never too late to keep a kilo of carbon in the ground. So that is the optimistic side of things. If you look to the futures, one of the scientific difficulties we have is, and one of the the real debts we owe society as as scientists, is that with increasing temperatures, uh, carbon dioxide, and of course changes to atmospheric patterns, We are not yet certain what it is we can expect from sea level rise and in other words, um, glacial retreat and collapse of ice shelves over the next 50 to 100 years. So to give you a concrete example, we could expect by um, 2100, which is within many people's lifetimes already, we might expect either 40 centimeters of sea level rise or two meters. And that has huge implications for change in the Antarctic itself and of course for ourselves with coastal planning. So those are the realities that are facing us if we don't get to grips with our greenhouse gas emissions. And they're kind of demoralizing from both the Australian and the Antarctic perspective because you don't really want to be losing those big ice sheets and beautiful ice shelves. And at the same time, from an Australian perspective, you simply don't want to end up with your coastal infrastructure going underwater. Absolutely. And we see images of that daily, don't we? Whether it be in places that we live or visit or on the news, not just locally, but globally. Stephen Chan, thanks so much for your time. It's been fascinating speaking with you. 
It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good on you, Director of Securing Antarctic's Environmental Future at Monash University. This text, Kirsten, that says we can view Antarctica via you know, people like Attenborough and other doc- documentaries. Yes, we could all do what we must do, but it is our um, way that we need to stop plastics, etc., in as many ways as we possibly can. And others saying maybe the CEO of Coles and Woolies need to visit the Antarctica to see how the use of plastic bags is spreading beyond our control, says Patricia. John's called through. Hi, John. Hello. Hi. What did you want to say? Oh, I, uh, I've been listening to the discussion. Very interesting. I might have some insights for your Australian audience. I'm uh, American. I went in 1985 to McMurdo Station, which is the biggest station on the continent. And then I returned in 1987 and I wintered over. So I did one summer and one winter in Antarctica at McMurdo, which is like a little town, really. And um, there's a few things that really impacted me. One is in the summer when you're there, the sun never dips below the horizon. And in the winter, it's dark for 24 hours a day for months on end. So I, to this day, I really appreciate sunrises and sunsets. I'm fascinated by twilight. I like to go out and take pictures and just witness it. I thought most people left, John, um, in, in the winter. No, no, no. Uh, McMurdo always has a, in the early days, they had just a few people. And uh, in the summer, they basically have to keep the place open. So there's a skeleton crew to run the place. And there are some scientists. I went on the, I worked for the contractor who provides all their work down there. I wasn't in the, on the science side. And the U.S. Navy provides all the transport and some of the infrastructure down there, so I got to see some of the American military side of it. Which is so what was alarming. your job, John? What did you do? Uh, the first year I went as a laborer, and the second year I went as an equipment operator. I drove a big forklift and some dump trucks and stuff like that. So this whole discussion about the tourist side of it, that they started opening that up and we were down there and it was really scoffed on by everyone who was there because east antarctica is not really like parts of it are, are above the antarctic circle it's not really antarctica and the reason they take the tourists there is because it's closer to south america and there is a lot more wildlife there but i was in west antarctica if you go straight the program goes in and out of Christchurch, New Zealand. So if you go straight south from there or from Tassie, you get to West Antarctica where uh, Mount Erebus is. And uh, we could see that every day. It was quite fascinating. And the other thing that uh, really uh, impacted me when I come back, because where we are, so there's, there's, no, there's no soil. It's, uh, uh, Erebus is a volcanic island sort of thing. So it's volcanic rock and snow and ice. So there's mm. no green. And I used to dream the colour green when I mentioned over there because you don't see the sun. And I really appreciate the greenery when I've come back. And also just insects. Insects. There's no insects down there. So when I came back, uh, just little lace-wing, you know, little bugs and stuff that will come and sit on your hands. It's just amazing, (laughs) that that amount of life, you know. But when we talk about things that don't belong in this pristine condition, a dump truck is probably high on the list, right, of images that I wouldn't have. But that's a fact is you can go and be a trader. You can go and work in construction there. John, thank you so much for calling through. Well, all of this conversation started around whether or not we should be limiting the number of people that visit, that go as tourists, but also to the impacts as humans that we have on the Antarctic. Elizabeth Lean is a professor in the School of Humanities at the University of Tasmania. And you, Elizabeth, and your team have been looking into just the sheer numbers of people that are going and the impacts that it's having. Do you think we need to reduce it? That's a really good question. People have been talking about the numbers being too high for quite a long time. You know, when they hit 10,000, around the turn of this century. There were questions around it, and I think there'll be questions around it um, for many years to come. Um, I think anyone that loves Antarctica is a little bit concerned uh, about those numbers, but it's unclear exactly you know, how many people is too many, and it really depends on how the industry um, is managed and the kinds of impacts that it has. Um, our, our researchers at the moment, we've got four researchers down in the Antarctic Peninsula with two different operators looking at how they mediate the experience and what kind of positive impacts they can have on people who travel with them. So one of your um, uh, listeners talked about sending the CEOs of Coles and Woolies to Antarctica to look at the impact of plastics. Well, that idea is that if you see the place, you will become an advocate Mm. for it. And there is certainly an argument for that. And we're looking at what kinds of factors might maximise that effect.
I can see other people saying, oh, but why the CEOs of these companies, you know? (laughs) Why not the everyday person? But, I mean, do we need people in places of influence, more people, to be actually advocating for Antarctica here in Australia? Because it doesn't really make the news very often. It's surprising how seldom it does make the news. Um, And I think that's one thing we could certainly work on is making Antarctica more visible, particularly in Australia. Australians are per capita pretty much the biggest um, Antarctic tourist um, group. Uh, We're about the third biggest by absolute standards, but we're a small country. So we're going to Antarctica a lot. We have a large claim on Antarctica. We play a kind of oversized part in the Antarctic treaty system in terms of our influence. And yet I'm thinking that the average Australian's Antarctic literacy, if you want to use that term, is fairly low. Um, again, that's something that our researchers um, are keen on changing. There's been a lot of comparison today to Mount Everest and to Venice as well and the impact that tourists are having on the natural environment there and how long it takes for change to occur as well. Like I think Venice is still fighting for cruise ships not to yeah. enter into their waters. You know, Mount Everest, you see lines running down the mountain that are extraordinary. Change takes a long time to happen and often when it's too late, is that something that's of concern to you and to your researchers that are currently there? Yeah, it is. I mean, the Antarctic Treaty System works by consensus, which in some ways is a very um, good approach. In other ways, it can take an awfully long time for the different nations involved to, to agree or at least not to disagree. And some of them have very different approaches to tourism. I mean, some of them are very cautious and conservative and others see it as, um, you know, fair game. So to try and get some kind of consensus on, for example, um, limits to numbers or limits to numbers to particular sites is really difficult. And there's been a couple of um, measures, which are sort of hard laws, put through the Antarctic Treaty, but they still haven't been ratified by all the the signatories because of these reasons. So it can be slow. On the other hand, I feel like um, it's speeding up in the sense that there are there's a lot of discussion at the meetings around tourism. There's, there's sort of meetings between sessions. I think it's something that's going to come on the radar in the next um, decade or so. Let's hope the decade's not too far, not too far away. Absolutely. Yeah. Elizabeth Lane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Lean there, Professor in the School of Humanities at the University of Tasmania. I think really relating it back to us and our impact and what we can do Makes it put makes us put Antarctica more on the radar. Yeah, that's it's the right. only way it makes sense. That's right, because the fact is, most of us, even though we've had some incredible stories today of people that have gone and how life changing it's been, the fact is, most of us aren't going to go. So maybe that connection doesn't feel there. But we do all have an impact. A hundred percent, we do. And I don't know. I'm, I I feel like my gut instinct is a hundred thousand people going as tourists. Too many. Mm. Too many, but, yeah. but I don't speaking make the to rules, them, Kirsten. I don't know. The people we have spoken to today, they've converted me. I think they are going yeah. to do big things. But is but everyone going to be that well behaved and think like that? You, you know, yeah. tourists <laughs> can be terrible. Let's face facts. I know, but they're not your cruise ship kind of tourists. Maybe. If you're going to Antarctica, you're, you've got another reason for going other than sort of like relaxing and... Um, buffet breakfasts that's it for today thanks for listening take care and we'll speak to you soon